This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed, and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Shots? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Shots? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep, but when I looked up he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. Doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day, the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. 
We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. A day's wait is the story. Pick up winner take nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country's ever seen. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal, and of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor, and thus the music... And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago. And, of course, because of her move, move, the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all, all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet, and one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like... It, I don't know. Like you, we've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it, and it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and and you know we we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when we t- when I brought it up to to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history. That I had growing up, and by the way, we yep. did everything. And these that that Were odor sounded. No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross country runner, and and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot, and and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house, and it infected yeah. the clothes. Like my clothes smelled. My my I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh. So, 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 so does your, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human and I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. (laughs) Anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but the podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so you know, we're we're I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also because you you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much you know your odor, your body is producing. That this doctor that I spoke to. Um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. And and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than two hundred and fifty thousand sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you want to know um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's gross. uh, It's gross, and and so so. So what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you, what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the, so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help, dim, you know, diminish it. Like, it's, you know, I'll grow it hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to, um, to get synthetic 
material that is sweat, what is it, wicking. So as long as, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called um, Smart Wool. So it's actually, it's, it's, I think, a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your, foot, your foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down, and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh, so I know, it's pretty gross. <laughs> so even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's gonna it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this the stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus so you can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot and like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully like for 24 hours and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that, then you want to use these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, the, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really you know. And for him, I think he's he's embarrassed. Um, I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like Febreze can work. And I said this is going to mask the odor, um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. And she puts on the rubber. I can't believe a flip flop would smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Fully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze and, and also, What's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so, home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled. And that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, so I can tell you that. I just, Throw them out. Well, I'm, really I'm hoping. I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, 
he actually did grow out of it. But, I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just oh. cre- it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last, a few weeks ago. I get into a cab. And, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about, like, body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal lighting. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's... It's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor. And as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that's, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So <laughs> this is good news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And... This could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home (laughs) and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all week this week, we're celebrating the U.S. Constitution. On September 17th, 1787, our founders signed the document, and it became our one and only and longest-lasting constitution on the planet Earth. And it is a beautiful document and worth celebrating and knowing. And all week long, we've been hearing from some of the titans of constitutional law, storytelling, and the like. And today we're hearing from one of the great minds, one of the great people that one could ever know, Antonin Scalia. He was nominated and appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1986. He was an associate justice on the Supreme Court from 1986 to 2016. He died on February 13, 2016. And by the way, Justice Elena Kagan, who was nominated by Barack Obama 
called him one of the most important Supreme Court justices ever, and also one of the greatest. And the thing about Scalia is he loved to teach. He loved to go around the country talking to students anywhere he could find them, high schools, colleges, law schools, even seminaries, and even the U.S. Senate, where he ended up one day, in the end, teaching and schooling U.S. senators about the Constitution and what makes it great. And in this particular clip, this story you're about to hear, Scalia explains what he has to deal with and what he tries to teach when talking to young student groups around the country. Let's take a listen. When, when I speak to these groups, the first point I, I make, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course. Just words on paper. What, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over, the Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So, the, the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a, a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. A and when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about 
is independence of the judiciary because the Europeans don't even try to divide the, the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick him out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at this system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house, sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party, it passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. And, and I, I hear Americans saying this nowadays, and there's a lot of it going around. They, they talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement. And, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate. He said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. It's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. And what a profound thing to talk about. And by the way, when you think about all the separation of powers and how difficult it is to get a bill through both houses, the House and the Senate, and again, the Senate gets six years, so they're elected differently, and not all at once in the House, that every two years, everybody is up for re-election. And the founders did that on purpose. And we need to know these things, because there's a reason why we are the country we are. By the way, the other dispersal of power that's fundamental to understanding the Constitution is this thing called federalism. And that is simply this, that the federal government, well, it was not in charge. That all of the power, not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, was retained by the states. And we did that to keep power close to home with people we trust, with people we know, people we could just go and visit at our local state legislatures. And so you were listening to Justice Scalia, and by the way, Dr. Larry Arn, that is on the website. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's the president of Hillsdale College. And what an hour and a half we spent with him. We also have Thomas Paine on the website. You hear from Common Sense. And why? Because Dr. Arn said without that pamphlet, without that writing from Thomas Paine, George Washington said there would not have been a constitution, let alone a declaration of independence and a revolutionary war. So all of it we're doing for you here on Our American Stories, the story of our Constitution, the story of our great country, and all of it is brought to us by and sponsored by Stetson Family Office. 
And the Stetson Family Office believes that it is important for young people to know the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And you can go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org to learn more. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. And as always, go to hillsdale.edu too. Their Constitution 101 course in this week in which we're celebrating the Constitution. Sit down and watch it. It's free and by some of the best teachers you'll ever see. I went to a great law school, folks, at the University of Virginia, and I learned more sitting in on a couple of Dr. Orange classes than in three years at UVA. The story of America, the story of our Constitution and our founders continues here, Constitution Week, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories, too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story we must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music, black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. 
here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Okay. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Riot Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Slystone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, it's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Of course, he's programming, drum programming on the air, which is like early kind of hip-hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever, to me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training. They're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane. Drop a school on the church. It's like that. With hip hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. early 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip-hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene. Sonically, it was 
polished, but at the same time, it was like this super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube, because he said it get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iveen. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip-hop. So his fellow John McClain was an A&R guy, brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre, it's his solo record, it used to be an NWA. I said, okay, I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three into the folk. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. Gangsta Rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. All you got to do 
And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Story. stories and our crew is always looking for well different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry and this one stumbled on our desk and it's called anger rooms a smashing new way to relieve stress this was in the new york times and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities and donna alexander well, she knows a lot about anger rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things. Okay. Um, well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background. So um, both my mother and my father uh, were Army, uh, they're Army veterans. And I spent all of my summers in uh, New York, um, in the Bronx. So um, I kind of got a... <laughs> Uh, a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military uh, family. And um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son uh, that are 10 and 12 years old. That's fantastic. And tell me about the you know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a, a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Samson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology, and I mm-hmm. bounced around, and, and it sounds like you bounced around. What, how did that help shape and form your character? I, I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella. I know that it it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of, of different people because, you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time, so I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, I think it just 
built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and and uh, lifestyles. So I think it helped in that fact. And then it also gave me a, a sneak peek at um, at traveling. Um, it lets me it let me know that I like traveling. <laughs> So um, it, it actually, I guess, played a, a nice little part in, in my life. Well, and you grew up, you, you spent a lot of time, you said, in the summers in the Bronx. And uh, as a kid from northern New Jersey, one of the great pleasures of my life, a dear friend of mine said, let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge and let's mm-hmm. go to this place called Orchard Beach. And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, wow. did, you, did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach? No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there. Um, usually when I got to New York and I played, I stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother, uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well, if you ever get a chance, it still happens. And it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just won't move. And I think part of the reason they won't move or Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody. It's required, and it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this, this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did, how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger room? Um, when I was 16 and at home in Chicago, um, at the time, I want to say that was around 98, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system. And I just figured that I could help out in some way. And I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members, uh, that went to jail for, like, punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well... What if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked. And then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. <laughs> and then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something, and that's basically how the anger room was born. Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the stuff people break, how you built this business, and where it is now. It sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon. And we're talking to Donna Alexander and her story from the New York Times, Anger Rooms, A Smashing New Way 
to relieve stress where people pay Donna a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to Our American Network to catch all that we do. More with Donna Alexander after these messages. Yeah. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander and an article in the New York Times recently, Anger Rooms, A Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress, was the headline. And my goodness, you've got to pick that up and read it. And we just started laughing. But there was something deep that was being captured here. So, Donna, you, you have your garage, and people are coming in, and what are they busting up in that garage? Um, they were breaking things like TVs and computers, um, laptops, a lot of electronics and, uh, like stuff, animals and things like that, whatever I can find, um, around my neighborhood that we had, that we would have out for our bulk trash pickup days. And, and so this continues to happen and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think I need to get a separate location away from my garage? I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business. Um, I want to say is that I know it's the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers, and they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the strangers started popping up, I'm like, okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that, hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up, and I, it turned out that I did. So. And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna, for the most part? Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to. <laughs> and so how do, how, do we, how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business, and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital. Yeah. Um, going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just, like, jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional uh, bank financing or anything like that. What I did is I started uh, from the background work. So I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property. And then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level. So um, it, I wanted just to make it fair. 
And then once I incorporated all of that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there, and it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000-plus no's and doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later um, that was willing to sublease to me. So my first space was a little bit over um, 780 square feet, and he just let us go uh, go for it. And when we did, uh, before I even opened the doors, I had accumulated a waiting list. So I had a four-month-long waiting list. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm a landlord. I own some commercial property. And for anybody who's a landlord out there, you're always thinking, hmm, who do I want in my space? And <laughs> I, I guess you had to be thinking, or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking, she breaks stuff uh, next. I mean, you know, what if a brick goes through like the. Exactly. Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What are, are you able to insure this business? Oh, yes. Yeah. That was the very next thing that um, that came up. And it was funny because I thought I got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord. And he was like, hey, you think you're going to need some insurance? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. So I, I searched. Uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance, but... Um, I was able to get us insured, fully insured, and even the insurance company, uh, when I had to explain to them what we do and how we do it, um, they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before. So um, it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business, and then they were able to uh, cover us. So, yeah, we definitely have. So, so your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops. The selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And, by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And, as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on well, what's happened in that industry before? You are mm-hmm. actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first. The first. Good for you. Yeah. So now let's Thank talk you. about your expansion plans. You, you, you succeed in this first location. And where is the actual location of that first store? Um, it's, in a, it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um, a suburb of Dallas. Yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. This is one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them. And who are your who are your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in? More men than women? Old, young, corporate, uh, hipsters? Uh, are the hipsters <laughs> have anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so... I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, 
family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three. And we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents. And we've had people as old as 75 uh, come in and break stuff. So um, we just we just attract a lot of different people. <laughs> and do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this, Donna? I mean, do, do people come in more stressed and leave happier? Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe. So, um, from all of that, uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show, uh, a lot of therapeutic value. And I get people all the time, uh, that participate and they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It, it even helps out health wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there. Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, your time <laughs> in, uh, running in the anger room. Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space, and we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene, and I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down, and he picked up the telephone, and he pretended like he was talking to somebody, and he got mad because um, the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he, like, totally destroyed the room, like, to bits and pieces. It was awesome. <laughs> That's my most memorable one. <laughs> That's great. And tell me what your plans are, Donna. You're you're heading off to two new cities, and I assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger. I'm thinking that, you know, some parts of America might not have as much anger as others. But what's your goal? What what in your dream, in your in your vision, in your blueprint for success? What does that look like, Donna? Um my goal, I would love for the anger room just to be a household name. Um I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um and sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worried about getting judged or uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to, to let their hair down, and that's what I want. Well, when I'm in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. Angerroom.com. Angerroom.com is where you can go to learn more. And... We want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article of the New York Times, Anger Room is a Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show. Arts, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. People are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, the late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. And uh, she was a herding dog and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to basically like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species uh, in this case my gorgeous little dog Dixie Lou so I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this. She knew that I loved animal training and loved animals. And uh, she also knew that uh, I had spent a lot of time in France and that I had workable French. And so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 Dalmatians and do a story on the production there. The, The thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment but the fact is what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot 
So there was a lot of time to kill. Uh, but it was just my good luck that given it was 102 Dalmatians, that there were all these dogs on the set and with their trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of, and it was Moore Park Community College's Exotic Animal Training Management Program, which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, and this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country, and it has a reputation internationally, too. Um, so if you want to get somewhere in this field, you ideally want to go to this school. So this, like, st actually, it struck me as almost something made up. But, uh, you know, once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book. And uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book. And I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots. And they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals, they had to learn sort of almost a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking and um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, the, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning into this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, when you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially 
potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue, like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it, or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will studiously ignore that behavior. Because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun and squirt water on them again. So I use that same sort of thinking. The next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do and when I heard the stomping and the harumping I just ignored him and I did not get involved and the next thing I knew my husband had found his keys and you know no drama and I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training. For the New York Times, for their modern love section, I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go onto the Today Show. I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland the writer of the book what Shamu taught me about life love and marriage and she's been telling us the story about her visits to the exotic animal training and management program in Moore Park California she wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband by the way I love that she called him homo sapien Scott Sutherland and homo sapien Lee Habib Need similar training. I don't just lose keys. I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But, you know, some people were sort of bothered by it, and they it didn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things is they said is that, you know, why can't you just tell your husband um, what you want him to do? You know, like, as if I hadn't tried that for most of my marriage. I mean, that's what we're all doing all the time, right? We are, you know, uh, we're all trying to change each other's behaviors, but we tend to do it verbally. And we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging 
or going on and on and about how we feel about something. It becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was blah diddy blah diddy blah. Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that, yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person it made me um, a more self, I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of, one, I quit nagging because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. You know, how could it how could it start with you? You know, there's there's times it's not, but you have to always think about that and think about you know what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had uh, I thought a lot about is um, uh, is in in the training world they have a saying that's called know your species. And uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with, meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night? Does it like to sleep during the day? Does it uh, does it like cold weather? Does it like hot weather? I thought about that with the people in my life. Like what were the behaviors about them? that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, 
not you know thinking of other things while he's doing you know the normal things like putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them um I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior i set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally this does not mean we don't have feelings but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy because people have some of these behaviors really wired in and also in addition to that you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you so i learned to take things less personally so for example uh in the train in the animal training world uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them. Because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. I mean, the thing is, is that I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand like when I can think through something and when I can't, when I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you gotta be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think 
there's a, a movement in this country, I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence, and the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers, and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching, and it's basically being, it's, it's using the clicker with humans um, and it's use, they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines, to help people improve their golf swings, to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu taught me about love, life, and marriage. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories. 